0: Are you looking for a book that's not boring that you would be able to give to friends or family members who may be interested in finance but might not be interested in reading the type of finance books that you read, you know, the boring ones? Uh, You know, I I do it too. Or maybe Christmas is coming up. Well, my guest today has written just such a book. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. My name is Joshua Sheets. Thank you for being here. Today is Thursday, October the 23rd, 2014. This is episode 87 of the show. And today I have an interview with a man named Joey Furman, who has written a pirate adventure novel to teach you about finance. It's going to be good. One of the things that I see happening more and more in today's world is we're developing brand new types of media to appeal to different people. And one of the types of media that I see, at least uh, a new need for, is better books. Not necessarily just more boring finance books that tell you here's what you do. There's plenty of those. And it seems if you go down to the personal finance section, it seems like if you read four of them, you've probably read about all of them. Many of them say about the same things. But what if there's an opportunity for a different format? My guest today is a man named Joey Furman. Uh, Joey's uh, a really great guy. We met at FinCon uh, when I was out there a few weeks ago or a month or so ago in New Orleans, and Joey formerly worked on Wall Street, where he worked as an investment analyst, and then he quit Wall Street to pursue his dream of writing and publishing his book. He's written a book entitled Pirates of Financial Freedom that purports to teach approximately 70 important financial planning concepts about and lessons about personal finance, and it does so in in the context of an adventure novel. So we're going to talk with him today. The interview is just a little bit over an hour. The first half is all about the book, and then the second half is all about what it's like to go on Wall Street. And because... Joey started in that business and worked in that business. He's a chartered financial analyst. He has experience in that business. I thought many of you who are interested in finance would be interested in hearing a little bit more of his story, hearing about some of his experiences, hearing what it takes to be a be an analyst and be involved in Wall Street. So, if you're just interested in the books, excuse me, in the book, the first half of the show is the show is the half for you. If you're interested in what it's like to be a financial analyst, uh, the first and the second half is what's right for you. Enjoy. So, Joey, welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. I appreciate you making the time uh, for this interview.
1: Well, it's great to be here.
0: So, I've been looking forward to talking with you since we met, and I have your book, and what I'd like to do is I'd like to accomplish in our interview today almost two different courses of discussion. Uh, I'd like to talk with you about your book and some of the lessons that are in it and some of the ways that it can be applicable and about that. And I'd also like to talk to, to you about your experience in the financial business. But to kick things off, would you start by sharing with me and the audience uh, a little bit about your history, uh, especially just your personal history and experience in the world of uh, high finance, so to speak? <laughs> What's your story?
1: Sure. Uh, so let's see grew up in Omaha, uh, went to University of Pennsylvania for college where I actually studied computer science and engineering and did a minor in poli sci. Uh had no interest in finance in college um, until I read Rich Dad Poor Dad and I was like, "Oh, you know, this finance stuff's actually kind of interesting. Maybe I should look into it." So, uh, Penn has the Wharton School of Business, which is one of the best business schools in the country, so took some classes there and I actually had to learn finance on my own in order to get my first Wall Street job, which was actually down in Boca Raton, Florida. I think that's near Where it. I live, right, yeah. Uh, so I wanted to live near the beach for a while, so I just moved to Florida and ended up getting a job at Morgan Stanley down there. And the way I got the job, because I had really no finance uh, academic experience, was I just immersed myself in it. So I read you know, dozens of uh, investing books. I was trading my own stocks and options account. I was watching CNBC. A lot of my friends were in the finance business, so I knew the lingo and you know, I found a guy who who took a chance on me. So I worked uh, uh, with uh, with my mentor for probably five years, and that was at Morgan Stanley Merrill Lynch. Then I moved to New York because I wanted to live in New York. And real I- quick,
0: real quick. Were you working on the retail side or were you working on the institutional side? Were you a trader? What was your role there? And explain the different possible roles because working at Morgan Stanley can mean uh, Morgan Stanley Merrill Lynch can mean many many things.
1: Absolutely. So down in Florida, there aren't many institutional jobs in finance. It's mostly all retail because there's a lot of wealth down there. So my job was on the investment analysis side. So I worked for a financial advisor. I didn't do any sales. I did more of the analysis for uh, the portfolios. So that Mm -hmm. was my role down there. And uh, yeah, there's lots of different roles in finance, which I'm happy to get get into. But Mm -hmm. basically I wanted to move to New York because New York is awesome. So I worked for Morgan Stanley there at their... um, Uh, Fifth Avenue office. Same thing, I worked for one of the biggest uh, investment teams in the firm. And my job was, again, like the portfolio manager route. Uh, And then I decided I wanted to become an entrepreneur and pursue that dream. Uh, So I quit my Wall Street job to come out with my book, uh, Pirates of Financial Freedom. And now I'm on that route, because I I see a lot of, I see more potential with that right now than I did on the Wall Street path. So I guess that's kind of my story in a nutshell.
0: How long ago did you leave Wall Street to work on your book?
1: Uh, earlier this year. So that was probably uh, April-ish.
0: Awesome. So tell us about the book.
1: Yeah, so I got tired of reading all those boring personal finance books, mm-hmm. and I know that there's a big need to learn about financial literacy, but nobody wants to read you know, a thick, long book or listen to a boring lecture. So I was like, how can I make this exciting? So I wrote the first personal finance adventure novel. Basically, it's a pirate adventure story that teaches over 70 money lessons, and I think that it can help a lot of people.
0: Yeah, I have a copy of the book, uh, which I, I got I bought from you after after we after we met and you told me about it. And I am so excited to see. I, I didn't know it was the first, but I'm so excited to see you doing this and leading the charge. I guess with Finding some ways to uh, adjust and and teach personal finance lessons in a way that is more accessible i 'm really concerned about you know just our general population, our general culture with you know knowledge comes from <laughs> largely comes from books, and all the knowledge of the world is found in a book but i 'm really concerned that many people uh, can 't read many people don 't read, and many people when they do read choose not to read books that have information, but rather to read <laughs> books that are more exciting. And I love to read an exciting book, uh, but I'm just con- so concerned with, with, with financial literacy in our country, and so I love having this as an option for people.
1: Well, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad you got a chance to read it and that uh, they like the idea. I'm calling this—I don't know if I'm trying to start a movement, but like, I call it financial edutainment, and I think that this category of book can just really explode, and edutainment in general— Uh, can really uh, explode just based on, you know, people have short attention spans, they want results now, and they get bored easily. So I think that teaching in this manner, and I'm trying to get this book into schools, and homeschoolers are working with it, all that, uh, I think it can really uh, change the future of education.
2: Right.
0: Are you aware of, I mean, are you aware of any competition in this genre? You mentioned that you're the first kind of with the adventure story, but are you aware of other, other allegories, other parables, other books that maybe influence this? Or influenced your idea.
1: Well, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean definitely influenced my uh, my book. Sure. uh, As as far as like a finance type book, I think the the best known one is Richest Man in Babylon. Right. Uh, And I've read that, and you know, I thought it was I thought it taught valuable lessons, but it wasn't it wasn't funny. It wasn't adventurous. There wasn't much action or plot twists or anything like that. Um, And then another one is the Wealthy Barber which uh, also teaches good lessons but again it didn't have that kind of it wasn't a page turner right uh, but i would say that those are probably uh, the you know the two that i'm aware of
0: yeah i i love richest man in babylon it appeals to me uh, I like the language of it, and I actually like I like the lessons. I like the language, and I like that it is so far removed. You actually did something similar with your book because you used a lot of kind of pirate language to mix it up a little bit and make it not, not necessarily sound... Uh, like 2014, although you didn't set it in 1714, it was clearly a modern a modern setting, but just with a twist. But I loved the language in in Richest Man in Babylon because uh, the, the the passage that stands out to me is there's a passage in there where somebody went and, and spent all of their spent a massive amount of money on you know the finest new camel hair robes, <laughs> something like that. And the greatest who doesn't want one of those, right. right? And you're thinking, well, that's stupid. Who would spend a lot of money? Money on a camel hair robe. Oh, wait a second. You mean these new, uh, you know, three hundred dollars jeans I just bought? Oh man.
1: <laughs> yep, that's a good point.
0: So that's uh, that, that. I and I and I think there's a real need for it. I, and I I hope you. Do, do you think you'll? Uh, and I want to want you to go through kind of the plot of the book in just a second. But do you have ideas for more books similar? Uh, obviously, you've got to make this one a, a raging success first. But have you had other ideas as well?
1: I definitely have other ideas, but uh, as you said, I'm just focused on kind of sales and marketing for this book, which is a whole learning experience on its own. Um, But yeah, I want to make this book a success first, and if I can make it a success, then yeah, I've got plenty of other ideas for future books and courses and speaking and all that kind of stuff.
0: Awesome. That'd be exciting. I've wanted myself uh, to create almost like a Hardy Boys for business adventure. Oh, nice. Because <laughs> uh, I, when I was a kid, I loved reading Hardy Boys stories and they were all about kind of detective uh, detective work. Yeah. But I would love to bring that in and bring in business adventure and somehow and teach kind of concepts of finance uh, on, on the side of entrepreneurship, on the side of due diligence on investments, things like that. Uh, so we'll see if I can build the margin into my life to be able to uh, to get it done at some point. But if not, take it and run with it cuz I would love to see I'd love to see more of this more of this genre exist. Um, tell us a, t- go go ahead, excuse me.
1: No, say so, uh, I think I think the genre can definitely grow and there is um I'm going to mispronounce his name but Patrick uh, Patrick Leoncioni or somebody wrote Fables of Business. So I'm going to look up I'm going to look up that but that might interest you as well. It's based more in the modern time but that's probably another type of book that is similar to this kind of, uh, fable type story with, with business lessons.
0: Neat. Neat. There's one other person also you might check out who I'm aware of, uh, cause he taught my CFP prep class when I did it named Ken Zahn and it's Z-A-H-N. He wrote, uh, I think he's written three murder mystery novels, murder mystery finance novels. So oh, he, nice. he is a financial planner and with a lot of experience, so he wrote some murder mysteries, and he uses them as a context for teaching people about uh, some intricacies of financial planning. So he basically presents some financial planning cases through the context of a murder mystery and it's pretty cool. I've only read one of his books, but he gets pretty pretty in depth into, for example, you know here, there's, here's the wealthy heiress, and here's the how her estate plan would be structured, and if we use this discount, we can get this valuation and, and, uh, <laughs> and does. It So, uh, so, uh, so you may also check out his work. It's it's a little different than yours. Yours is very focused on kind of practical stuff. His is a little bit more uh, the intellectual financial plan side. But uh, but he also recommendations for the for the audience. So, but Ken's not here. You're here, and I didn't. <laughs> I want you to talk about your book. So tell us the plot, and then share some of the lessons that you've worked in.
1: Sure. So the basic idea of the plot is you've got Captain Rich R. Daly, and he's a pirate captain, and. The book is based in kind of like today's world, but with 17th century pirates, like off the coast of South Carolina or something, they're still kind of there doing their own thing. I kind of compare it to the Amish, right? So they're kind of still doing their same things that they were doing hundreds of years ago. So these pirates are still around kind of doing the same things that they were doing hundreds of years ago. But a lot of these pirates are becoming landlubbers, which are us, right? They're attracted by the cell phones and like Mm -hmm. the, you know, those fancy jeans and everything. Um, So... They decided to move and become a landlubber.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So the captain, he has to recruit all these landlubbers to become pirates, and he thinks the best way to do that would be to show the world that his pirates are rich and wealthy and that they have lots of gold. The problem is his pirates are broke. So <laughs> he just so happens to have a son that works on Wall Street, so he requests that his son come down and teach his pirates like, how to build wealth and how to build treasure and all that kind of stuff. So it's their adventure story where uh, Giuseppe, the Wall Street guy, teaches these pirates uh, how to pay down debt, how to build their credit score, um, how to save for retirement, how to think like the rich, buy mm-hmm. their first home. You know, there's over 70 lessons. And along the way, they've got sword fights and uh, treasure hunts and mythical beasts and kidnappings and walking the plank and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's the basic idea of the book.
0: What are some of the types of lessons that you have woven in? When you say 70 lessons, what would be some of the general uh, concepts that you're referring to?
1: Well, what I did is I tried to, you know, the main lessons that a lot of the personal finance people are are well aware of, right? Mm -hmm. So live below your means, uh, snowball method, Mm -hmm. um, uh, dollar cost averaging, like all those kind of basic things that you know you and I and the other personal finance people are well aware of but that the general public really isn't aware of Mm -hmm. so I wanted to make sure that I covered a lot of the basics but then I threw in some some extras and I invented kind of some of my own terms like the 10 times test or the think delay mentality I also got into kind of things that aren't necessarily covered in in personal finance as much so like uh stock ownership rights and ETF investing and some of these other things that maybe aren't getting as much attention as they probably should.
0: I, I want to read one of the things I wanted to read. Let me read uh, about four paragraphs, just a, a little bit of the dialogue around the 10 times test, because this was one of the things that stood out to me. I love these little rules of thumb, and I have never heard. So so let me read it, and then we'll talk about it, uh, just read about uh, – uh, uh, A very short excerpt here. He said, uh, But buying things you want isn't always a bad thing, continued Joey. Part of the joy of being financially secure is that you can blow your money on silly things you don't need. Really? So I can buy it? Rusty became excited again. Well, it depends. You need to be able to comfortably afford your wants. I live by the 10 times test. What be that? Asked Sandy. The 10 times test says that when it comes to something you want, you should have at least 10 times that amount in savings. If you don't, that means you are spending over 10% of your life savings on something you don't even need. And it goes on from that. So did you make up that 10 times test?
1: I did. Yeah, it's, it's my own original concept. And that, uh, that section you're talking about, uh, Rusty wants to buy a $500 parrot, right? Mm-hmm. Because everybody... Or every pirate, quote unquote, needs a parrot. Of course, Um, but uh, obviously, it's it's not a need; it's a want. Which Joey, aka Giuseppe, Uh aka looks, talks, and acts a lot like me. Right. um, That character, but uh, you know, so he doesn't have that five thousand doubloons in savings, and so it doesn't pass the ten times test. This is actually something that I applied in my own life just when I was getting out of college. Mm -hmm. I was just kind of like, oh, you know, that's a a good idea. Like, why would I spend ten percent of my lifetime savings on something that you know I, I don't even need and then I just kind of like oh you know what other people may find that useful as well and based right. on the reviews and people that I'm hearing from they're like that's a really cool idea it's really easy to understand like i'm going to start applying that
0: right it's very useful and i'd never i'm i'm glad you made it up i may steal it i'll credit you every time i can <laughs> but these some of these just little rules of thumb i find are so useful to help us I guess have a basis that moves toward wealth. I, I remember, you know, another one I've I've stolen is um uh, Sam, financial samurai. His, you know, don't buy a car that's more than ten percent of your annual income. Make sure that you have, you know, never own vehicles that are worth more than ten percent of your annual income. And what can happen with these things is that we don't really have any. We don't really have any societal rules about what we spend money on, and what we don't spend money on. So, therefore, oftentimes the default becomes. We just simply, if we have it, we buy it. If we have it, we spend it. Uh, and without some sort of guideline, we don't have anything to judge things on. So if I tell somebody, you should never spend more than 10% of your annual income on a car, then they can say, oh, wow, so that means I make $30,000, so I should drive a $3,000 car. Why? and they can say well if you want to be wealthy this would be a rule and so when they're going and looking for cars automatically they're looking in a different price range than if somebody's working 30, 000, making $30,000 a year and is saying oh I should spend 15 10 or 15% of my monthly income income on a car then they're looking and saying well 10% of my income would be $300 little under $300 a month so therefore I can afford the payment on a three hundred dollar a month uh, on a three hundred dollar month car, and they wind up with a twenty five thousand or thirty thousand dollar car, and they right. have no ability to become wealthy. So these rules need to be rules. These these work ideas of mine. I should spend twenty five percent of my income on on housing. Well, wait a second. What if you had it? I should spend one year's salary on housing. It changes the the scenario. So I really like your ten times test because it's useful even for younger people uh, to say, hey, have ten times this amount of money in savings, and don't ever, you know wipe out all your savings on something
1: yeah and i think it's i think it's applicable to everyone so you know if you have no savings and you're going to buy a dollar candy bar right well hey, at least that'll get you started to save ten dollars before you buy that candy bar right and a lot of time it's just it's just getting started like people are so intimidated by taking that first step but you know this and then if you're a millionaire and you want to buy a three hundred thousand dollar you know ferrari or whatever then you should probably have three million in savings so it, i think it can apply to everybody
0: absolutely It's useful, and I don't really care that much if people follow it to the letter. I care that you think it through and that you have a logical framework for what you're thinking through and that the rules that you have are rules surrounding wealth, not rules that are dictated by a consumer-driven society who says, yes, you can afford this uh, if you can afford the monthly payment. Mm -hmm. Are you... Uh, aware, is, is there any other of your ideas that you implemented in the book that I might not know that were original with, your, with you?
1: Well, so the it's kind of associated with that um, ten times test, but this idea I call think delay. And basically, what this says is, let's say that let's say you don't pass the ten times test. Mm-hmm. That's not saying that you can never buy something. Like I think some, I think the general public thinks like all the personal finance people are saying you can never buy nice things. You or you you can't buy that, and they think that you can never buy it. I think delay says no. You you can eventually buy it once you're financially responsible in a better place. Right. You know people think that oh yeah I don't want to listen to these personal finance people because I can't buy luxurious things and whatever. And I don't think that's what any of the personal finance people are saying. It's saying you you want to delay that purchase until you're in a better spot. Right. Um, and so I just coined think delay for that. But I mean a lot of people preach the same thing.
0: Awesome. That's really cool. I like that. Uh, it's good to have a, a little bit of lingo. Do you have a list on your website or you personally a list of the 70 or so lessons as far as like specifically enumerated somewhere?
1: You know, I do. um, It's not like uh, well formatted or anything. Mm -hmm. And I I think it's probably more than 70 lessons. But I was like, yeah, let me just see all the things that are in here. Uh, So, yes, I do have a list
0: one of the ideas that i had when i was reading the book and i'm not sure if you thought of it and decided not to i was thinking about how i could i could leverage the book uh, for other people and you could i could just give it to somebody and say hey here here read this book i think that i would use this book i'm going to interrupt my own question are you do, are you did you specifically target this toward a certain audience a certain age bracket a certain type of person in your mind
1: i did so i wrote it so I tried to think of what would be the best type of person that I could really make a difference for that could apply the lessons,
2: mm-hmm. right?
1: So there's a lot of the retiree market. There's a lot of the kid books. Um, but like kids, they don't make any money. And retirees, it's, I mean, I don't want to say it's too late, but, right. you know, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of too late. So what I did is I looked focused on the teens and 20s market. Right. Right, because they're starting to make some income. They haven't formed these bad habits yet. They're hopefully not in, you know, a load of debt. And you can really make a difference. Uh, so I I've, I've focused on that market. But it turns out that people from ages eight to 48 have read the book and are like, wow, this is like great. I understand it. It's like making a difference in my life. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's one of those books that can apply to multiple ages. But I, I did write it for the teens and 20 market in mind.
0: Right. Yeah, that's that's what I thought. Partly because you said that on the back uh, back cover, yeah. <laughs> uh, It did. Uh, but my thought was that with those seventy lessons, I kept I kept wanting to look to the back of the book and find an appendix with a listed number of those lessons. And you didn't include an appendix uh, or an index of the lessons. What you did include was you included some note pages. And so when I thought about how I would maybe leverage this book, is I would give this to I would give this to teenagers as a book report topic. And I would use it almost as a and say hey read this book and uh, and then the goal would be after reading it go back through and outline it and try to bring out as many of the lessons and maybe if i were a teacher i would i would uh, maybe integrate this as you get uh, points based upon how many lessons you can bring out and so maybe if you actually take your list and just simply produce it as a teacher's guide or as a manual uh, i mean if i were a if if my son were older i would be assigning him if he weren't already reading them i would be assigning books like this and and setting up an incentive system for him to read them understand them outline them apply the lessons enumerate them and figure out how they could be applied to his own life so maybe uh if you built out that out maybe with the home education community and maybe with teachers who are economics teachers in 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 the government school system or or in private schools maybe you could build out some teacher resources for them and that would help teachers and parents to be able to assign it
1: i think that's a great idea um I'm actually putting together a curriculum for teachers right now. Uh, it's based per chapter, and each chapter has discussion questions, activities, and test questions that you know, the homeschool community and the teachers in general can use. But I hadn't thought of adding like, just the 70 lessons in that guide, so that's a really good idea. I can uh, easily do that.
0: That'd be cool because they're, they're, it's so pithy, and the challenge with with these books, uh, as far as a book that is a, an edutainment, as you as you mentioned in the in the show or in the book, is the key to education is implementation. Knowledge isn't what makes the difference; it's applied knowledge. So my thinking with with books, I mean, I, I have. I have had to learn how to read books and figure out how to apply them because reading goes far beyond just the reading. So it's kind of an an easy entryway. But then I need to go back and dissect it and figure out and apply it because it's the application of the knowledge, I think, that that really makes the transformation.
1: Uh, Well, I agree 100% with that. And that's why the last chapter in the book is basically the goal-setting guide and kind of my system on how I think you can set and achieve goals uh, because you're right, there's a lot of people that are that already know this knowledge and are still broke.
2: Mm-hmm. Why
1: is that? Because they haven't applied it. Like, I think the biggest money mistake people make is that they don't actually take steps to apply the lessons that they've learned. They're not taking any action towards financial freedom. They just kind of, like, read about it and think about it, but don't actually take that take those steps. So
0: Absolutely. we're on the same page for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um. So I would yeah I would encourage people to to get the book. Uh, You have. I was impressed when I looked at your website that you have an excerpt from the book. Uh, uh, Frankly, I don't know how to. This is the first time I've ever done an audio interview about a book, so I wanna I wanna intrigue people with the concept without ruining the book. So I don't know. Right, there are some plot twists in there. (laughs) Right, right. So I'm trying not to. I'm trying not to give a spoiler. You know, I have no idea how to do a, a a book. Interview with an author, other than other than kind of what we're doing. Um, right. But but you have well, a really have great. A Go ahead.
1: Character.
0: I spoke over you. Say uh, I apologize. Say what you just said.
1: Well, I'm curious if you had like a favorite character or a favorite lesson in the book.
0: You know, for me, I just uh, I didn't have a favorite character, or a favorite lesson. Uh, I thought the the I'm partial to pirate captains, so I thought <laughs> the uh, the captain was a was a fun character, and I liked how you used kind of these uh wacky slightly wacky not absurd but slightly wacky characters with the pirates and because it's kind of funny because you can almost create a caricature and instead of uh, instead of building out a modern caricature you can joke about how this uh this pirate is is you know what was the scene in the book where the pirate is is going to the store and buying all of these uh bottles of rum uh, yep. and he's got all these different brands of ramen, has no money. Well, it's kind of a joke about a pirate doing that, but yet how many of us know people that do the equivalent of that, whether it's with alcohol or not? Yep. <laughs> and so I like these caricatures because instead of being, uh, instead of, uh, being specifically critical of modern society, you, we can kind of take the indirect lesson and apply it to somebody that we know and recognize. Ah, look at that.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Well, it's funny. So this, um, an eight year old girl in New Zealand read my book in about, uh, five hours, she said, and her mom uh, emailed me and was like, wow, Joey, you've created a monster. Like whenever we go to the store, she's like, mom, is that a need or a want? Right. Uh, like, have you thought about inflation? Like, what are we going to do about that? And you know, she's saying all these things from the book and she's starting to apply some of the lessons with her own entrepreneurial type things. And she's starting to save some money. Uh, So yeah, some of the, some of these characters really like live in people's minds for a while because they're like, they're at the store and they're like, oh, you know, I thought about what like Rusty said and I ended up not buying it. Right. (laughs) So yeah.
0: Right. And that's the, that's the thing that we can do as you create books as, as you know, I'm creating a different medium here or a different type of media, uh, with podcasting. I would love to see, uh, I've, Seen some people uh, mentioned it in one of the shows where some people are producing a a cartoon series of business lessons with Warren Buffett on YouTube. I don't remember the name of it, Um, but like we need. It's very easy for me to get really hardcore and radical about you know the doom that is facing our (laughs) our world because of a lack of academic excellence and uh, to kind of. Um, just be awful, but the key is we've gotta we've gotta adjust and learn how to reach people with lessons, and learn how to encourage other people. And not everybody is the same way, and we need different types of media that appeal to different people. And just by giving, you know, I, I mean I'm thrilled that that you created this because, uh, and I'd love, I'd love for the audience to buy a copy, uh, go and buy a copy. Uh, even if you don't, aren't that interested in reading it for yourself, buy a copy to, uh, to give to somebody. Uh, it may be that somebody says, I don't need to read a novel. That's, that's, that, that, it appeals to to teens and i would encourage them to read it uh but i mean i'm going to be giving my copy away um simply because this is a type of, of format it's easier for me to give your book to somebody who's not that interested in finance than it is for me to figure out uh what, what, what book do i give them do i give them you know the Bogleheads guide to investing do i give them the right. dave ramsey total money makeover do i give them the rick edelman you know this or the uh you know the to Jacob Lund Fisker's early retirement. A novel is a fairly non—you know—is a fairly straightforward thing. And if we can, the decisions that we make are influenced by the paradigm that we have. So we've got to intentionally shape that paradigm, that way of thinking, and encourage others with new, more constructive ways of thinking.
1: No, I'm glad you think that way, and I, I do think my book makes a good gift for somebody who. Knows nothing about money because you can give it to them in a way that's not insulting. Right. Right. If you give somebody like "How to Get Out of Debt" book, you're kind of like, "What? You know, what are you saying? I don't know how to manage my own thing." But if you're like, "Hey, here's this like really funny book, and you know, on a side, you'll also learn some good money lessons, but like the story's really cool." Right. That makes it an easier way for them to kind of learn these lessons, like you know, wrapping the medicine in some bacon or something.
0: Right. Right. I remember when we were at uh, FinCon, I heard Pete uh, Pete Money Mustache say, uh, "Trick people into." <laughs> trick people into learning something and cool. i hate that philosophy because it's uh, it's so antithetical to how i think i should be and we should be we should desire to learn people like i, I just hate that philosophy but i recognize that sometimes it is uh <laughs> it is important and necessary
1: <laughs> you know it's sad but that's kind of the world we're living in for most people you know the right. people that need these lessons are the ones that aren't reading the books and right so yeah you kind of have to trick people
0: right very cool what is the website for the book?
1: Yeah, so it's uh you can go to piratesoffinancialfreedom.com. Uh you can also google pirates of financial freedom and it'll come right up. But for those who aren't, you know, kind of skeptical of like what is this, you can also get it for you can get the first half of the book for 99 cents on Amazon. Oh cool. So people can kind of like preview it and see if they like it.
0: That's a great marketing idea. Uh, Thank you.
1: Very but cool. to buy the actual book, you have to go to my my website because I've done a lot of research, and that's the the best way to do it if you can pull it off
2: right
0: uh, so. right yeah self self publishing i mean you can uh as long as you're okay with it from the not having the uh prestige. It certainly seems like you can... It, it results in more money in the author's pocket um, depending on the marketing platform. So uh, that would be great. And the, and I would just encourage people, it's October. Uh, October 21 is when we're recording this interview. So this interview will go out some here, t- sometime here toward the end of October. And Christmas is coming up. If you're looking for uh, a good Christmas present, I think uh, uh, I love to give and receive books. And sometimes books stay on the shelf until they're timely. Uh, but that's a great present uh, to give somebody as a Christmas present. It can be a great present for a young person, for a not young person. Uh, I think it's a very, an excellent way to bring in financial concepts. And because there's so many financial concepts, unlike uh, unlike many, unlike some personal finance books that are written in the mindset of, this is what you must do, here's the plan, here are these five steps, and you have to follow these five steps. It's much more Low key, and there are enough lessons that somebody could pull from it to say, "Here's what's appropriate to me at this stage." Uh, and I think it could be an excellent, an excellent um, present, an excellent gift uh, as a Christmas gift. So I well, would encourage you. people to consider that as we approach the Christmas season.
1: Well, I appreciate that, and a good uh, new for if you're going to make a New Year's resolution for taking control of your finances in the next year. That's also right around the corner. It's hard to believe that uh, it's already end of October. Time oh, just it's flies. amazing.
0: Amazing. <laughs> anything else on the book that I missed, uh, or anything you'd like to mention about it before we kind of flip over to your experience in the world of finance?
1: No, I don't think so. I think we did. Uh, I think we did a good job.
0: I think it's a good introduction, and uh, again, first time I've done a, a book uh, <laughs> a book interview, so this is the best shot. You did a, I've... You
1: did a, you did a great job. I was impressed.
0: <laughs> oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> so. The world of finance and the world of Wall Street. There are a lot of people who are interested in that listen to the show that write me emails and say, "Well, how do I get into finance? You know, I, I'm interested in personal finance. I'm interested in investment. I'm interested in learning. Uh, I I have experience in the personal finance space and on the perspective of the retail financial advisor space, but I have no experience on the institutional side, on the portfolio management side, and kind of on the Wall Street side. So. Um, What's it like? Why did you leave? Did you leave because you didn't like it? What, what, what's, the, what, what's it like to work on the institutional side?
1: No, I, I actually did enjoy it. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity, and it's hard to categorize like a finance job uh, in general because there's so many different types. Uh, even within finance, Firms like you can't really stereotype firms either because each department is different, each experience is different. So to kind of generalize the whole thing is very difficult to do.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: the the reason that I I liked being in the finance industry is because uh, there's so many different options. You're you can do many different uh, go down many different avenues in terms of research. Like the amount of reading and learning you can do is just infinite. I mean you can never, you know, even in personal finance there's a lot there's a lot to know, but in When you're doing research on companies and on economic trends, and when you're trying to make predictions about stock prices and asset classes and all that stuff, I mean, literally, you could never read it all. Uh, So the opportunity for learning is infinite. And obviously, you can make a ton of money. Uh, So that's another uh, appeal. I think that's probably the main appeal for a lot of people to go into finance. What's interesting is that a lot of my friends work in finance. They work at hedge funds, investment banking, like private equity firms and whatever. And a lot of them just they're not that excited about their job. You know, they got in cause like, you know, it's prestigious and the, the money's good, but I don't feel like they're excited and passionate, uh, in their in the, in their jobs right now. Some are, don't get me wrong. Some mm-hmm. are definitely, and some of them are very good. Uh, but that's one of the reasons I kind of wanted to kind of try something different because like I'm, I'm excited every day talking about my book and figuring out how to get it out there, helping people. Whereas a lot of the finance people are just kind of, you know, they're not that, uh, <laughs> they're not that thrilled about going to work every day.
0: Right. Do you – you've done uh, enough academic work. Uh, You hold the CFA charter, which is a substantial amount of work. And I'm going to ask you uh, in a bit kind of just to lay that out for people because people oftentimes have questions. They see all these designations and they don't understand the course of study. But before we get there, how do you handle the – like how do you handle the idea of the value that you actually bring working in mainstream finance, many people in the personal finance space um, view, and I think rightly so, in many circumstances, view the uh, finance industry, uh, especially the Wall Street finance industry, as as more of a leech on society, rather and, and on a, and as a cost, an embedded cost on society, rather than as a value that bring something that brings value to people based on your experience, how would you answer that challenge?
1: Well, I don't think that that's entirely inaccurate. Um, but it depends, right? So there are some finance people who are really intelligent, who put in the work and they do add value. But another reason that I got discouraged with the finance industry right now, cause it's really hard to generate alpha. So alpha is, um, let's say the S and P 500 is up 10% in the year and uh, your investment mutual fund was up 12%, mm-hmm. right, so back of the hand calculation, you added 2% of alpha above mm-hmm. the market. Sure. So you know, for people who aren't maybe familiar with that term. But it's really, really hard to generate alpha, and it's especially hard right now because over the past couple of decades, so many smart people have gone into the finance industry that it's really saturated. And so to find that edge in like a large cap company, is really difficult right now. And you find a lot of people leaving finance going to technology because you can kind of get rich quick in that kind of area where there aren't as many smart people, but that's becoming saturated too. Right. Um, so, I mean, I think a lot of the people in finance are, are, really doing their, their best. They have good intentions. They work hard. I mean, these people work 80 hours a week, you know, looking for that edge, but it's, it's pretty tough. Um, but there are, I mean, there are, there are good, Out there, and it's kind of changing. So, like, it used to be all about active management, and now passive management is kind of making its trend with like low-cost ETFs that are cost-effective, tax-efficient. You're you're not you're never going to beat the market, but at least you'll be the market. You're never going to underperform, and so that's kind of been my philosophy when I was managing portfolios. Like, the core would be kind of like this passive approach where you're not paying these exorbitant fees. Uh, and then you look for like the outliers where you actually do find some managers who, who really are adding value and who really do a good job. But it's like any other industry, like 80% of the people in any industry just aren't adding that much value. It's those finding those 20% of the people who really are really good at what they do.
2: Right,
0: right. And what's frustrating is that, I mean, the challenge of finding those people, it's it's double challenging. And this is where when you get into the the kind of the world of prediction which is why so many people throw in the towel and I understand why they do is that not only do you have is that you have two levels of challenge you ha- the manager has to find the manager has to create alpha and alpha, and I'm glad you defined it because we, we throw that term around, but you know, how I think of it is just simply the, ba- the value that the manager adds over and above just simply the market condition. Uh, and so the manager has to create alpha. And then if you're a portfolio manager, you've got to find the managers who are creating alpha in a specific asset class. And it's that's a tough, uh, that's, that's, it's, a, it's a double whammy tough. Um, but yet that, I mean, do you believe it's possible to do? based on I do your experience? It.
1: No, I do believe it's possible. Um, I, yes, I do. Uh, but another challenge on top of what you mentioned is that you can find the managers who have generated alpha in the past, but that doesn't necessarily mean they'll generate alpha in the future. Absolutely. Which, um, you know, makes it even more difficult. I mean, I spent, uh, you know, two or three years just interviewing investment managers. And, and I learned a lot about, you know, how they perform the research, what they think their edges are, and so I got a real in-depth look, and I talked to the salespeople and the portfolio managers, so you kind of see both sides. And you know, it's it's tough, but there are there are people out there who generate, um, who have generated uh, alpha over a sustained period of time. But it's it's very tricky because those people suddenly get all all that all the money, right? So you're doing a good job, you're generating alpha, and now all of a sudden, like you get all these asset flows. So while it might be easy to generate alpha with like a hundred million dollar fund. Try generating that same alpha with a $2 billion fund right, right. or whatever the numbers are. Uh, it just becomes – the more successful you are, the more difficult it is to generate that uh, up performance going forward. So it's tricky, but, yeah, I mean there there are successful people out there who have done a good job at it.
0: Explain for somebody who's not familiar with institutional management – why is it more difficult to, when you have more money, why is it more difficult to make a higher rate of return? Which, shouldn't it be simpler because you have more money, you can buy more deals?
1: Uh. Well, so Warren Buffett has said, I'm a Warren Buffett fan. I mean, I'm from Omaha, Nebraska, originally. So, uh, you know, he said that if he could just manage like a small cap portfolio, small cap meaning you know, small stocks, not the big stocks like IBM and Microsoft. And, you know, those are the large cap stocks, but like just a small cap portfolio. I mean, he could he could generate 100 percent plus returns. Right. Mm -hmm. Because there's uh, there's more inefficiencies when you get to kind of more esoteric, smaller type of asset classes. But when you've got, you know, uh, like Facebook or some company that every Wall Street Firm has a analyst covering it, and they have all these research reports coming out. And there's 20 different research reports on the same company. Like trying to get an edge in that field is is very difficult. Uh, plus, if the manager's in that large company, let's say they were able to double the revenue in one department. Right. I mean, that's huge. That's a huge deal. But like, when your company's that big, like doubling the revenue in one department is like nothing. Whereas in a smaller company and a manager makes a change like that, now all of a sudden, like, that's a game changer. So those are some of the reasons.
2: Right.
0: And also, uh, in addition to that, at least from, and again, I ha- haven't worked in this, I've read a little bit, but you also just have the problem of, of making your trades. And when you have, yeah. I mean, that's what Buffett talks about. He can, and I don't remember the numbers that he uses in recent discussions, but when you've got to make a $50 billion deal, and a $30 billion deal, that's a lot tougher than making a $3 million deal. But if he went, if he made $3 million deals every hour of every working day, that would never be anywhere near, that would never be anywhere near, it wouldn't even it would be completely mindless in terms of the sheer size of the portfolio that he has to allocate. Whereas for an individual, let's say that you are a, a mass affluent person, and you can go out and, and do a three hundred thousand dollar deal, or a million dollar deal, or a three million dollar deal, uh, that can make a major difference in the size of your uh, of your uh, you know returns. Uh, if you can fi- you can, I mean, you can find a lot of small deals. It's kind of fifty billion dollar deals don't come along too frequently.
1: No, they don't. And he's and, and Warren Buffett is looking for those types of deals. You know, he's looking for those big elephants where he can put twenty billion dollars to work, but I mean the opportunity size is also smaller. Like how many twenty billion dollar companies are out there versus how many three million dollar companies are out there? Right. So right. another reason why it's just really hard. The bigger you get, um, the harder it is.
0: Right. Yeah. I, I mean I've struggled because there's so many conflicts even in my own thinking to be able to make general – general observations, like more specific, you know, suggestions for in an individual situation where you know the facts of the situation are easier, but more generalized observations are tough because there's so much nuance. So, you know, active, passive, you know, investment styles, investment approaches. But I talked with a guy from Morningstar one time, extremely smart guy, and he was a uh, upper level uh, researcher at Morningstar. And, and we were talking about portfolio design and he's it, the statement he said struck with stuck with me as being a sensible statement. He said, um, if we're going to use an active strategy, it better, it, like, it better be in an area where we're sure it's adding value beyond uh, the passive strategy to justify the fee. Because yeah. you know, it's almost like you see this approach happening many times, is that somebody may build a core portfolio around large-cap U.S. stocks, a large, very efficient market, a lot of information, a very stable market. Uh, but buying an S&P 500 index is not necessarily the same opportunity as buying a Brazilian gold mining index you know there's there's a little bit of a difference for an, for somebody to maybe maybe be able to sniff out uh, out performance or be able to do a little bit more of exhaustive analysis on whether it's a fundamental analysis or there may be a, uh, a it's just a less efficient market so i i see it as to, that that's Currently, the opinion that I hold um, and I just keep looking just to see, is this opinion accurate? Uh, but to me, that makes a lot of sense. As, as markets develop, then a lot of times the smart mon- the, the, the researchers are going to move to areas where they're not as developed, and then that will help those markets to develop and to become more efficient. And gradually over time, then these, this is how the economies adjust and shift and evolve over time.
1: Well, yeah, and the reason that uh, those smaller markets develop, as you say, is because when they're kind of undeveloped and there's inefficiencies there, those investment managers are making really good money, right? right? So they're putting up good returns. Now, that's, I mean, returns draws a crowd, right? Right. If you're in an inefficient market and you're putting up good returns, that's going to draw all the people to help develop that market. And then the re- the returns aren't as good because now there's more people researching it. And so, that, yeah, that's kind of the cycle.
2: Right.
0: And then in an idealistic world, whether this practically works or not, then this is all part of the capital, the, the attraction of capital to a market. So theoretically, one of the major functions that... Uh, so-called Wall Street serves is the efficient allocation of capital. So if we're working in in the Malaysian markets, then if there's able to be good returns, then the advisors, then capital will flow there. And then so as the capital flows, that will theoretically help the market to develop over time. As the outside investors come in and that flows and that helps the local entrepreneurs to have access to the capital that they need to be able to exploit the business opportunity that they see. Now, whether that works so well in practice i guess is different but it it does serve a valuable i mean to me what i what i see in the conversation what's missing a lot of times is the understanding of the historical context Uh, and i don't claim to necessarily understand how markets develop but i have a model in my head of how they do and that helps me to kind of see how over time the markets develop um Develop and, and this is how economies develop and efficient markets develop over time. And so we can still serve that valuable function by allocating capital into these less developed markets. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you made a statement also that I just thought was really interesting. And I, I don't think I've talked about it on the show, though. But you talked about how a lot of smart people went to finance. And maybe some uh, some finance, smart people are... Moving out of finance and moving into tech, and just the the difficulty of the competition. Uh, did you? I mean, did you feel like you were in kind of a Ivy League, uh, <laughs> a d- credentialed, just a den of ridiculously overqualified people when you were working in Wall Street, or did you feel like there was an, an ability for you to build out a competitive edge?
1: Well, no, I think that I, you know, within my circle, I definitely had a competitive edge, uh, because I worked harder and I think I have some good insights. Uh, but it, you know, the typical path, if some of your readers or listeners were, um, thinking about how can they get a job in in finance? And again, it kind of depends what age they are, right? So the, the typical path to become like a wall, uh, to become a hedge fund hotshot is like, you get really good grades in high school, you go to an Ivy league school you uh, study business there, you graduate um, and you work in investment banking for two to three years, and then you switch over to either the hedge fund job or a private equity job. That's the typical path. And then from there you build, you, be, you, know, you do a really good job as an analyst working probably eight hours a week. Then you get the promotions and eventually become a managing director. And then maybe you spin off and start your own hedge fund and then become a billionaire. Like that's kind of the typical path. Um, but there, you know, there are other ways to kind of to get in there. But that's that's the the best way to do it if you can start early. But yeah. know, for a lot of people, it's kind of too late to take that path.
0: The, the personal finance lesson I draw from it is if there's a lot of competition and you have an efficient competitive market. That sucks. Go somewhere else and find somewhere where there is not a lot of competition. You um, know, example that I have in my personal life. One of my backup businesses, if my other business, you know, if all of my other business ideas that I'm currently pursuing fail, is one of my backup businesses. Business plans I've considered is I may start a daycare business for children uh, because I look at a daycare business and they make a lot of money. Well, you can make a lot of money, but I look at it and I see that this is a societally unappealing healing business. If I were to introduce myself as a 35-year-old male and say, oh, yes, I run a daycare, that's really a, a tough pill to swallow for many people's pride. And so that means that when you look at it, then the market competition, all of the smart, quote-unquote, all of the smart guys are going to Wall Street, I'll go to the daycare business. And I'm there are some very smart people in that business, but there would be a much higher uh, population of maybe... Part-time people, small family operations, maybe uh, it's a very very kind of part-time focused business. There are some big chains that are kind of working at things. But I would want to go there because it seems like my competition would be perhaps less astute when it came to some of the application of business principles. And it would probably be easier to outstudy my competition in a business like that than it would be to outstudy my competition on Wall Street.
1: Yeah, it's very hard to outstudy your competition on Wall Street. <laughs> Too many smart, hardworking people there. But you're right. I mean, that's kind of the reasons why I why I left. And I might go back at some point. I mean, I like Wall Street. Right. But um, you know, I have the I have a monopoly on the personal finance adventure novel market. Right. Right. So you created the market. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I c-
0: uh, I think I currently have a monopoly on the two-hour daily podcast about personal well, see, finance. It's really crazy.
1: <laughs> Perfect. Right. So I mean, it's a lot easier when you have less competition. Um, Yeah, you make a good point.
0: Right, another example, and I give kind of proof for this one I remember years ago reading in Tom Stanley's books on marketing to the affluent, and he talked about he talked about this i don't remember which book he covers it covers it they all flow together in my mind, but he talked about something like scrap metal dealers scrap metal dealers being an incredi- uh, uh, an incredibly scrap metal being an incredibly profitable business now in any business you have the 80 twenty where there's the twenty percent that make eighty percent of the money so eighty percent percent of the scrap metal dealers aren't going to make much money. But I've, I've met a couple of those guys and there's some guy locally who runs a junkyard uh, and and I found that to be true here in my market uh, both in uh, I, I never was able to bring on any of them as clients of mine, but I worked with some people who worked in their organizations and they confirmed, yeah, this guy makes a million two, million three, his CFO makes 650, uh, you know 650,000 bucks and I'm sitting here saying, here is this junk yard. From this guy who's kind of a scrubby-looking guy, and he just goes to work in shorts and a T-shirt every day, but this guy's making a million two, a million three. He doesn't have the target on his back that the big finance guy has. He doesn't have the high lifestyle. He can, and so he's found an ability in the, to to exploit this business. And th- the challenge is that we don't teach people to use this as an opportunity to say, if the market's efficient, get out. Go find somewhere where you can create alpha in your personal income stream and in your investment. solution solution and go find an inefficient market and exploit that t- uh, to your own gain to your advantage
1: yeah well another interesting point is about that that junkyard guy nobody expects him to live a lavish lifestyle whereas right. the wall Street guy or the doctor or whatever they expect you to so you're actually become you could probably become wealthier faster in that type of a role because no one expects you to spend all this money on fancy things right uh, so that's uh, that's like an added benefit but the thing about finance is like it's still a good job. Like you, you can make uh, six figures like right out of college. Um, so, I mean, that's appealing. Whereas some of these other jobs, you have to create the opportunity. Whereas a lot of people just on, are not entrepreneurs. They'd rather work for somebody else. And the finance community is, is great for that. I mean, you can make good money in finance um, and learn a ton. So it's still a good path if you're not the entrepreneur type.
0: I'm struck by, uh, by at least in some of the books I read, with profiles of people who work in finance. It seems like many of the people who work in finance who are the most successful, they're doing it, yes, because they make a lot of money and they enjoy it. But they would almost are still doing it, even if they don't need the money or don't care much about the money. Absolutely. Is that they get into it, they find out they liked it, they enjoyed it, and they're kind of just weird different people who really love love the the game and they because they love it they're good at it and so the money is the byproduct and so they they would hate you know many of them maybe would would hate running a scrap metal dealership um they just they like finance and then they wind up being really good at it
1: exactly and i do know some of those people like yeah they make really good money but they just they are, they're excited to go study the study the market they're they're adding value for their funds like they they really do good get good insights, and they, that's what that's what gets them excited. Like Warren Buffett, like he just loves what he does. He doesn't have to work. Right. None of these billionaire hedge fund guys have to work, but they just they just love it, right? So, right. Uh, if that's you, then absolutely go into finance because you can make a really good living and make a lot of money doing something that you love. And I mean, that's the dream for everybody.
0: Absolutely. Two other quick um, areas I'd like to pursue. I've I've given people, I'd like you to kind of lay out and I'll give you a moment to think about it while I ask the question. I'd like you to lay out any categories of jobs that you can think of for somebody who's interested in the side of finance that you come from. Uh, How I've laid this out on the retail side for people that have asked me about is is I've laid out that you basically have three primary functions on the retail side. And by retail, I mean working with clients in a personal financial planning, personal financial advisory capacity. You're either, number one, a producer, Meaning that you are meeting with clients and you are selling products, selling insurance selling investments, uh, or you are doing financial planning and bringing on clients, and so you are responsible for the acquisition of clients so you 're a producer uh, and that's in you're directly interfacing with clients in some in some regard that 's where the highest income potential is, but it 's also the most entre- it 's the most entrepreneurial activity, but it 's also where the highest income potential is and it's primarily a client interface uh, job to to help people uh, understand what their goals are and what they're doing. Number two is there's almost the back office analyst role. So whether that means you are a competent financial planner, but you're not very good at bringing in clients. And so maybe you're a back office CFP, or you may be a back office portfolio manager, you may have some client um, situations, but you're primarily responsible for a more technical job. And that is a profitable position, but it's more of a salaried position, that, and it has less profit potential than does the producer side. And then, or, and, or the third area is you may be an, involved in an administrative role of some kind. So whether this is uh, a paperwork administrative role, whether it's a, more of a secretarial role, or whether it's just simply more handling the administration of, of, of accounts. I mean, there can be a various functions, but it's more of an administrative role. Um, so that's how I've kind of categorized it in my mind. They're not perfect. They're not Exclusive, but I've told that to people when they're trying to figure out, hey, I want to get into finance. What are the different options? I said, well, what option do you want? Do you want to be a producer? You want to be a back office um, investment analyst, uh, just simply responsible for running the portfolio. Based on your experience, do you have any categories that you would tell somebody that would be helpful uh, for someone to understand the lay of the land a little bit if they're interested in pursuing a job in finance?
1: Well, I'd say there are three main buckets that everybody wants. So you can work at a hedge fund, you can go into investment banking, or you can go into private equity. I mean, those are kind of like the three main areas that, that you get paid a lot of money. Um, yeah, you make a lot of money in all, in all three of those areas. I would say those are kind of like the main buckets on the on the institutional side. So I'll kind of go into a little detail on each. Um, so hedge fund, it's a broad term, but uh, basically... You're picking either stocks or bonds or different asset classes, and you're trying to generate returns, um, over uh, generate alpha over a multi multi multi-year time period, or you could have a trading horizon anywhere from a few milliseconds to like a few years, right? Hedge fund is a very broad category, but basically you're you're investing in um, publicly traded securities that you can buy and sell on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Investment banking, these are the people that uh, take companies public or raise capital for companies. So like when Facebook did their IPO, uh, if a company needs to uh, issue a bond for $500 million or you know billions of dollars, these are the investment bankers. And uh, they do research on like what's the company worth, what kind of interest rates should we do, and they they spend a lot of time in the office. Private equity is you basically have a large pool of capital that you raise from investors, then you pretty much go buy entire companies, right? You're not buying stock of a company, you're buying the entire company itself. And then these private equity guys will try to find the companies that they can add value to. So they'll buy an entire company and then restructure it, or they'll uh, bring in some consultants and add new products, or they'll reduce expenses or whatever. They'll redo it for like three to seven years, and then they'll sell it, right? So they buy the company, they change it for over three to seven years, and then they sell it to somebody else. So those are the, th- the three main buckets. Uh, and then within that is, like, the different roles. And basically, most people are analysts. They just they just analyze, and they can analyze anything, different sectors, different asset classes. So if somebody wants to go into finance, I think they should figure out, you know, what do they want to do? What do they get excited about? Like, is that high-yield debt? Is it emerging market companies? Do they love um, consumer finance companies? Like, try to figure out what sector excites you the most, and then that'll give. Learn as much as you can about it, and then when you go to apply for a finance job, you'll be like, you know what? I love materials companies because of X, Y, Z. Here's my favorite material companies. The management is great. Um, if you look at the trajectory of their growth, I think it's going to continue for a while. And then you basically pitch the idea. The best way to get a, a stock market finance type job is to do research on an investment idea you know over for a few pages and then show it to people and be like look at my analytical ability skills and then eventually somebody will be like wow this is really good let me take a chance on you
0: mm-hmm. neat so, is there a type of person
1: you're looking for but uh it is there's it other is. types of jobs so like you can work for a mutual fund company which is much less competitive i mean all the finance jobs are pretty competitive but if you become an analyst for a mutual fund company or for like a uh, uh, a smaller type shop you know they're more likely to take a chance on you rather than like you know Goldman Sachs or some of the big hedge funds.
0: Is there a type of person that you would think would be attracted more to you know a hedge fund or more to uh, investment banking uh or is it primarily more about the interest of the person like you said of hey i i, I like this type of analysis Hm do you look at people uh, on the subway and say Ah investment banker, oh, that guy's an analyst you know that type of thing, can you pick something up about people?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I know people at all these firms. Um, you know, I think the hedge fund types just really like the market that they're studying. So whether it's uh, you know emerging market uh, stocks or um, large-cap companies where they really get to sink their teeth into the balance sheets and income statements and they just love numbers and they like talking to management. Um, you know, maybe that's the hedge fund type. The private equity guys are, I think, maybe more entrepreneurial, right? They have a vision of, like, how can I change this company right. to make it better? Uh, and then the investment bankers, um, to become a, a successful investment banker, it's, you have to eventually get into sales. Right. And sales is not what you, what most people are probably thinking. It's you have to go to companies and be like, hey, you know what? You should buy this other company, and here's why. You have to sell the company on the idea of buying another company. Or, you know what, you need to come with us and do your IPO with us because of this. And you have to sell them on the idea of listing their stock or, you know, going public with you. So you kind of have to be a salesperson to become very successful in investment banking. So maybe those are kind of broad stereotypes. Right. Neat.
0: I think that'll be helpful because a lot of people are interested in finance that listen to this show and and it, but it's 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 an overwhelming world to an outsider. Uh, and it's well, the
1: first step is to just get started. you know if uh, if you love if you want to be like a a great stock analyst, start analyzing stocks right uh, If you want to become a great trader, start trading. Uh, there's nothing but experience. I mean, you can open a Scott trade account for like five hundred bucks or something and start picking stocks and that's when somebody is interviewing you, especially if you don't have that Ivy League background in finance or whatever. They want to see that you're passionate about the job that you're applying for. Like, hey, you know what? I don't have much finance experience, but I spend three hours a day analyzing balance sheets of companies. And I watch uh, Fast Money every day on CNBC. And I talk to my friends about finance all the time. And I've read these 20 books. And here are the lessons that I learned. Like, People, people respond to that
0: yeah absolutely uh, it's, it, I liked how you said, as far as getting a job um the i think the key to getting a job is where you said go and prepare a resor- prepare a research report on an investment idea and go show it to people uh, that's very yeah. much I think that works in every industry don't go and don't play this ridiculous game of i'm going to answer a job uh a job uh application and send in a, a cover letter and a resume. Maybe it works for some people, but it seems like a really inefficient way for me, like in my mind. Uh, I would say, go do something and be remarkable in some aspect and then go tell people and show people and try to help people. Uh, I'd rather go somewhere and say, hey, I'd like, to co- I'd like to work for you guys. I'll work for free for three weeks or for a month, show you what I can do, and then you can decide about hiring me then. Uh, I mean, it's just a different mindset.
1: Yeah. Well, and the other thing about writing the research report, that piece of advice came from a very successful hedge fund manager, by the way, when he was asked, what's the best way for somebody to get a job at your firm? That's the advice that he gave. So that's not just coming from me, but from other people. Yeah. But the other thing is you can use that research report to network. Like if like everybody, if you're a smart person and you have a good investment idea, everyone wants to read about it and learn about it because right. they are all looking for the best investment idea. So you can just call up people and be like, hey, I wanted to get your advice on this uh, investment idea I have. Would you... Would you give me your opinion on it? Could you give me some advice on how I could make it better or whatever? And it's kind of like that backdoor networking where you're like, yeah, you're not asking for a job, but now you've started a relationship with that person. And when you finally do, if you show it to three people, you now have a much better research report and then maybe they can introduce you to somebody who they know is hiring, right? right? Because you're right, blindly sending resumes isn't going to get you very far. But if you have now this network of like intellectual analytical investment types, they're going to try to help you out if you know you're a friendly person and smart and you work hard and they might they might know of a job and they'll be like hey go interview with this person now you get a referral which is way better than a cold anything
0: absolutely 100% I'd like to wrap up with just a little bit of information on the process of becoming a chartered financial analyst. I think you're the first uh, CFA charter I've had on the show. I can't remember having another one. Uh, I do not hold the CFA charter. I'm interested in it, but it's probably... You hold everything else, though. Yeah.
1: I mean, you've got like <laughs> a billion letters after
0: that, which is very impressive on its own. Yeah, but it, 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 right. Um, I don't know if I... I I, I'm sure I could do the CFA. Uh, it's just simply uh, it's not a, as much of an area of interest for me because it's so analytical on the yeah, investment you gotta, side. Got to
1: be interested in
0: it, right? And it's a it's beast. a it's a beast. So explain to people what is if you see the letters CFA after somebody's name, what does that mean and why should that count?
1: Okay, so. There's a few different, de- different designations. CFA is the gold standard for investment analysis. Like if you want to work at a hedge fund or private equity shop, you want to get a job on Wall Street, CFA, like nothing beats it. CFP is terrific if you want to be a financial advisor, more of a consultant, you're working with clients. CFP is kind of the, the best designation for that. Uh, but the CFA is uh, three tests. Uh, each one has probably a 40% pass rate. They're offered in general once a year. The first level is offered two times a year. but uh, So if you fail a test, you have to wait a whole year to take it again, which was just awful. I passed uh, level 1 and level 3 on the first try. I did not pass level 2 on the first try because it's, it's very difficult. And I decided to take it right after. Like I took level 1 in December and just tried to take level 2 in June. Ah. Not a good idea. <laughs> not a good idea because right. like level 2 is by far the hardest. Uh, And so people think, like, they can pass level one, level two, and level three will be no problem. Level two is just ridiculous. I knew one guy who studied for the CFA for eight years and finally got it. Other people study for six years, and they just give up, right? Right. So this is not an easy test. You have to study probably six months before the exam to really have a good shot at passing it. I think you have to study at least 300 hours. I think one of the – is the general guideline. And, uh, yeah, so I don't know. What you want to know about it, but it's 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 the real deal. It's the when somebody sees a CFA, it's just instant respect.
2: Right. So absolutely. if you're
1: looking for a job and you don't have a finance background, get the CFA, which could take you, a, which will take you a few years, but if that's if that's your purpose in life, get the CFA because that'll people look at them and they're like, wow.
0: I would like to point it out as a personal finance lesson, and and then. Yeah just as a as an opportunity that most people don't think about and i think that these opportunities exist in in huh, almost every industry to do something like this so for example i apply this thinking in terms of college many people are very focused on saying how do i go to college how do i figure out how to do that how to pay for it what can i how can i get the most prestigious college college degree but if you are working in the finance space, I think it probably does matter to some degree whether or not you're uh, your if you're trying to go straight to Wall Street – and you can come from, from an Ivy League and you have a master, an MBA from Harvard or you have an undergrad from an Ivy League, that may matter a, a little bit. It definitely does matter. Until you get in the door and find out if you're good. But, I mean, you you started in Boca Raton, and, and there's always a way to skin this cat. If I were 16 years old and I knew I wanted to work in finance and I didn't have the money to go to to Ivy League, I would consider... Just simply punching the certification on the college, go get the CFA and get your foot in the door, and you can get your foot in the door there. CFA prep would be what five five grand for the cost of the tests and all the fees and everything. Do you have any idea?
1: Yeah, well, the first level is a lot cheaper than that. I mean, some people go to MBA school and spend a hundred thousand dollars or whatever. I mean, you can get the CFA all in. Yeah, maybe five five grand. Right. Uh, it's and you study on your own time, and you right. can still work while you're getting it, so you can have an income. Like, if you're if you're if you're hardcore about financing, you're debating between an MBA and a CFA. A CFA blows it out of the water. Absolutely. Of- and you Pitfall. got
0: the exactly that was that was exactly my point is that you got the difference between I'm gonna go I'm gonna borrow eighty thousand dollars and get an MBA, or I'm gonna spend five thousand bucks and get a CFA. Now, for those who know. The CFA is one of those things that say, wow, okay, that's a whole lot harder than an MBA. You can skate through an MBA without a lot of rigor if you're, if you're gifted academically, uh, but you can't skate through the CFA. That, I mean, the test is designed to illustrate your knowledge or your, or your ignorance, and every one of us who has been around in the finance business and who knows what, the, you know, what all this stuff actually means, you are 100% right. I mean, the CFA, I have a tremendous amount of respect for people who have finished that that program. And there's a way where you can knock 70 grand off the bill of an MBA just by taking 5,000 and going the CFA route. Now, it doesn't negate the value of perhaps the potential value of an Ivy League uh, MBA or an Ivy League undergraduate degree. But if I didn't have the money, if I didn't have the background, if I couldn't do that with a scholarship system, I would pursue the cfa route and allow myself to demonstrate capability and work ethic rather than saying i've just got to go and borrow a hundred thousand bucks so that i can might be able to go and get this job on wall street
1: yeah let me let me address that ivy league issue some people think like oh i could never afford it but a lot of these ivy league schools if you are dirt poor Mm -hmm. you can go to an ivy league school for like very little money mm-hmm. because a lot of the Ivy Leagues are, um, they, they want a well-rounded population and they don't want somebody who can't afford it. They're not going to reject somebody just because they can't afford it. They have lots of grants and they'll, if, if you're dirt poor, but you are qualified to go to an Ivy League school, you can go there for like really, really cheap. Right. Um, which isn't true for like necessarily middle tier schools, but for the top schools, they want the best people no matter what. Uh, so you can go to these schools for, you know, really, really cheap uh, if your parents are poor or you're poor or whatever. Um, so don't let that discourage people. If if you want to go to an Ivy League school and you can't afford it, well, you, guess what? You can't afford it. They'll make it happen for you.
0: Right. I think culturally we just don't bother to apply. And this kind of happens a lot of times. I remember years ago I I heard Zig Ziglar give an uh, account he made of – he did an experiment where he made two newspaper job offers. And the syntax of the newspaper ad for the classified section was the same, except he did it in one major market and he offered $30,000 a year. And he did it in another major market and he offered $100,000 a year. And he got a massively smaller percentage of applicants to the $30,000. But the listed necessary qualifications, excuse me, he got a massively smaller number for the higher paying job. But the listed qualifications and requirements were very different. And it's remarkable because so many people just simply... Wouldn't see themselves as Ivy League material, whereas you know what's the harm of applying? You know, just apply, uh, and and if you have some some skill or some desire, things can can be worked out. I think it's a good point you make.
1: Well, and that's that's uh, something I address in in my book, the the limiting beliefs, right? right. I'm a, people, if people think, so one of my favorite quotes in the book is, "Whether you think you can." or whether you think you can't, you're right. Mm-hmm. It's a famous quote from uh, Henry Ford back in the day. Right. And so if you think that, you know, I I could never get into Ivy League school, or oh, I could never get a job in finance, or, oh, I'm not smart enough for this. You're right. You're, 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 you're simply right. You're not. But mm-hmm. if you think, you know what? I do have the potential for this. I can become a Wall Street billionaire. I really can. do. I do have the potential. Even though I have limitations, I can figure it out. Well, then you're right about that, too. Right. So... Really think about you know what you want, and then believe that you can do it, and then be willing to work hard to get it. But if you think right from the start that oh, I can't do that, no matter what it is, you're you're right. You probably you probably can't. But everyone has the potential to do whatever they want, especially in today's economy.
0: An excellent reminder, because no matter how I think, I think all of us, no matter how much we, um, no matter how much we think, you know, I I re- recognized a, a few weeks ago. Um, just even that in my own thinking, I was up in Pennsylvania, and I thought about um, calling um, John Bogle uh, for an interview. Because I've read several of his books, and I thought, ah, he wouldn't talk to me. I just have this this show... And I had to, you know, I caught myself thinking that, like, I haven't interviewed enough famous people yet to really have the platform, you know, to call him for an interview. And (laughs) I was, I was pretty ashamed of myself because there's no reason why I can't call him for an interview. There's no reason why I couldn't have popped in, you know, and said, "Hey, I'd like to." uh, Brought my voice recorder. I'd love to love to talk to Mister Bogle if he's available, and I'd love to uh, love to talk with him. But but I had the limiting beliefs and. Uh, it was. I was pretty embarrassed to find myself thinking that way. I, I wound up deciding not to do it. Happens to, to it. everybody, right? It, it's all of us, and no matter how much we think we're immune to it, we're really not.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So. Well, Joey, thank you so much. Uh, I think this provides a really interesting insight into into people's, uh, into people's the world of finance. And I'd encourage people, don't forget, I mean, the latter half here, we haven't been talking about the book. But go over to Joey's site, Pirates of Financial Freedom. You've got the first chapter on there for free, right? And then the first half for 99 cents, you said? or uh, you I've have...
1: got uh, three sample pages on okay, the perfect. site. Okay. And then you can get the first half for 99 cents on Amazon if you just want to kind of preview yeah. it.
0: Do the first half for 99 cents and, and, and read that, and then check it out. Consider it for your Christmas, uh, Christmas gift list, and um, uh, I think it would be a valuable, a valuable work. And keep, uh, keep writing, Joey. We need more and more in this, in this, in this genre. So since you've created it, you now <laughs> have the opportunity to be the master of it.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I'll do my best.
0: Anything else uh, as, that you'd like to share or anything, anything I missed?
1: I just want to say you did a great job on in this interview. I had a <laughs> I had a real good time, and uh, you keep up your good work too. Because I'm gonna be uh, I'm gonna check in with you every now and then and see if you've got that uh, Bogle interview. Absolutely, that needs to be your your goal within the next two years. I want to have you uh, interview him, and I'll uh, I'll cheer when you do. Absolutely, that would be uh, that would be wonderful. I,
0: I'm I've I've got to... The biggest challenge that I'm facing right now is just the amount of time needed to do some of the things. I mean, I'm here in Palm Beach, and season is coming, and every bigwig of finance, um, every bigwig of many, many bigwigs of finance are here and will be here during season. So I've got a unique opportunity that um, if I can get the introductions, I can go and visit with people here during during the Palm Beach season, Uh, but. I've got to build it into the time, and I just am feeling so stretched with all the different things that I've got going on. I've got to build in the time to make the connections through the contacts that I do have, to get the referral, to get the introduction, uh, to get the appointment, to get the interview, and then go in and, and, and bring the interviews to the show. Um, but you know, the urgent and the important are often, are sometimes at war, and uh, uh, oftentimes I, I've, oh, yeah. I'm, making, I'm making time for the urgent and not necessarily the important and non-urgent
1: that's a, that's a common, uh, problem for everybody. Like, um, you know, the last chapter in my book, it talks about my weekly goal setting system of setting smart goals and having an accountability partner, um, to make sure you get the things done that you want. And then also I'm, I've been overwhelmed with work myself and I found that time blocking really helps. Mm -hmm. So some of your listeners are like, you know, I'm not getting the, I'm not getting my goals done, or I'm just, I'm just busy, but not productive. You know, look into the, that goal setting thing or uh, time blocking each day. I found that that's helped a lot in my own personal life.
0: Absolutely. Well, awesome, Joey. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate your making the time.
1: Well, thanks for having me. This was this was great.
0: I hope you enjoyed that. I know, jo- <laughs> I know, Joey's not going to want any competition. So <laughs> since he's created a monopoly in his business, but I would like to encourage some of you in the audience who are excellent at. Uh, finance, at uh, concepts of finance, and you know a lot, you understand a lot. I know many of you listen to the show because I've heard from you. And I would encourage many of you to maybe consider adding your own form of media. Uh, perhaps you might be able to take my idea and write the Hardy Boy series books of, of business success. I know that we seem to be going toward a more of a – a culture, we seem to be uh, – going in the direction of more of a video, multimedia type of, of context, but I really want some, some of these great books to, to succeed uh, that teach business lessons, that teach life lessons. So maybe you can do that project. I don't know if I'll make time for it in the future or not. I'm not I'm not ready to make time for it at the moment, but maybe you can. So consider if you can use uh, some art, some form of art that you have to teach people You know something that will be helpful. Uh, we probably have about enough financial blogs out there. Uh, there's enough financial books that are boring and dry, but maybe you can bring up and bring in some valuable new ideas and present them in a different way. If you have done projects like this, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, I'd love to profile things like this. I'd encourage you go check out, uh, you know, read the first half of the book, see if you like it. Um, that's a good deal. Uh, pay a buck and, and read the first half, and then maybe order a half a dozen or a dozen or, t- uh, or so for your friends and family for Christmas. And let's use some of this new art – not new, but let's use some of these art forms to spread the message of uh, financial independence and financial prosperity to more and more people. Thank you so much for listening today. I want to thank uh, all of you who have been – Uh, Subscribing to the show want to thank you for that That is helping So please make sure If you're not subscribed to the show If you like the kind of content That we had today I'm here every day Monday through Friday Five days a week With in-depth shows That hopefully are easy To listen to every day Because we vary them dramatically As days go by Uh, Make sure that you subscribe To the show would love to have some reviews On Stitcher uh, still only have five reviews over there, so if any of you are listening on Stitcher, it would really, really, it would really helpful. Be helpful if you would take a few minutes and review the show over there. That would mean a lot to me. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Uh, tomorrow, I think I'll be back with a Q and A show, and then I got a bunch of interviews lined up next week. Still have room for some questions, though. If you call them in this afternoon, today, as this show goes out, uh, I may be able to get them on tomorrow's show. So come on by and leave them. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great Thursday. To today's show. This show is intended to provide entertainment, education, and financial enlightenment. Your situation is unique, and I cannot deliver any actionable advice without knowing anything about you. This show is not and is not intended to be any form of financial advice. Please develop a team of professional advisors who you find to be caring, competent, and trustworthy, and consult them, because they are the ones who can understand your specific needs, your specific goals, and provide specific answers to your questions. Hold them accountable for your results. I've done my absolute best to be clear and accurate in today's show but I'm one person and I make mistakes. If you spot a mistake in something I've said, please come by the show page and comment so we can all learn together. Until tomorrow, thanks for being here.
2: America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling,